The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. President Biden announced today that after 20 years, the United States is finally pulling out of Afghanistan. We'll talk about that with former State Department spokesperson Morgan Ortegas. Plus, we'll check in with Representative Jimenez from Florida. Begin tonight with the big story of the day, and that is President Biden announcing from the treaty room earlier this afternoon that he is going to pull all remaining combat troops out of Afghanistan by September 11th of this year. Uh, His decision to speak from the treaty room is significant. As many of us remember, my students don't, but they were too young. But as many of us remember, 20 years ago, that was the same room where then President George W. Bush announced that we were going to be invading Afghanistan. And of course, in that time, it has proven to be a costly decision for the U.S. $2 trillion spent More than 2,400 American troops died, not to mention 150,000 Afghans killed in that same period, including about 43,000 civilians. And I believe we have sound on President Biden speaking today from the treaty room in the White House. War in Afghanistan was never meant to be a multi-generational undertaking. We were attacked. We went to war with clear goals. We achieved those objectives. Bin Laden is dead and al-Qaeda is degraded in Iraq, in Afghanistan. And it's time to end the forever war. And joining me to talk about this big news today, I'm so delighted to speak once again to former State Department spokesperson Morgan Ortegas. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Morgan, I have to start with what we just heard President Biden say, and it was something we heard Anthony Blinken say as well. We have achieved those objectives. In your estimation, have we achieved those objectives, and is it time to leave? Oh, that's a really long question, um, an answer to a long question I could spend the hour on. So, I think we have to, to look at it a few ways. I mean, one of the biggest things that we talked about in the Trump administration is exactly what you said at the beginning of the show, that your students weren't even alive, uh, many of them, whenever we went into Afghanistan. And that's certainly, I think, something that weighed heavily, very heavily on us in the Trump administration. I'm still in the Navy Reserves. I'm an officer. I could, you know, I could theoretically uh, get deployed uh, there. And you have to ask yourself, you know, if, if I were to go and leave my infant daughter, why are me or many other people in the military telling our children that we're leaving? What are we saying to your students, you know, uh, military people in the military of your students' age who are still going to Afghanistan? 
So one thing I would remember is that what President Biden announced today is actually just an extension of the Trump plan. And what I mean by that is President Trump, uh, through Mike Pompeo, our Secretary of State, and Ambassador Khalil Azad, who actually Biden and Blinken kept on, spent two years in the Trump administration negotiating with the Taliban, trying to come to a peace deal. Um, and we did. Mike Pompeo signed a peace deal in uh, February of 2020 in Doha. It was actually one of the last trips that, that we took before things got locked down with COVID. So we signed that deal, and we pledged in that deal that we would get out by May of, of this year. Uh, and, of course, what President Biden today actually announced was an extension uh, on that peace deal that was negotiated by the Trump administration. And I do think that that's an important point, not necessarily to give you know Pompeo or Trump credit, but to say that there is a bipartisan consensus on both sides of the aisle that 20 years of, of war in, in many Americans' minds is too much. Now, what does that mean? That means it's, it's, it's definitely uh, you know likely that the Taliban could take over. I think everyone's cognizant of that. I just think in this new age, people are asking themselves, as the president said today, do we need to spend more money on China and, and uh, defenses related to China and other issues? I'm sorry, I know I'm talking too much. No, you're not. No, because you, you just you got me very excited. I wanted to ask you right on that last point you made about the Taliban. We heard from many people today, obviously, in response to this, including Lindsey Graham, who basically make the case that we are we are going to see a resurgent Taliban. Um, and I believe we have sound on that. I don't trust the Taliban to look out for American interest, but we're finding ourselves in a very precarious situation. So, Morgan, what I wanted to ask you about that is we are leaving at this point with no conditions on this withdrawal. Many policy experts say that that is dangerous to the extent it leaves us with very limited leverage to cha- shape really Taliban the Taliban's choices. Do you agree with that assessment? Should there be conditions on this withdrawal? Yes, it's all true. I mean, the one thing that your viewers, uh, your listeners have to understand is that when you work in in foreign policy, you often have choices between a series of really bad options. Now, I'm chuckling because Senator Graham is an incredibly good friend and and mentor of mine. And I actually called him this morning uh, to talk to him about his thoughts. And and we argued for a good good 10 minutes (laughs) on the subject. So so I've already argued, I have my fill of arguing with him today on this. And, and listen, as personally, I'm an incredibly hawkish person, right? Like I was on the team that was, um, you know, that was uh, in charge of getting Soleimani whenever I worked for Mike Pompeo. So it, it's not a, a lack of being hawkish. I think that there's a lot of people on both sides of the aisle that are looking at uh, resources uh, from the from the U.S. government towards the military, obviously, tax tax resources, and how are we... How are we paying for everything that's important in military in a military budget? So is it here? So here's a really crass and really hard way way to look at it. Is it true that it's possible that ISIS and Al Qaeda could re, uh, reconstitute once we leave? Yes, that's why we've been there for 20 years because we always knew it was possible for them to reconstitute, and no one wanted them wanted that to happen. Uh, on our watch, yes, it's possible that the that the Taliban uh, could take over, which is one of the reasons why President Biden and Secretary Blinken kept on Ambassador Khalil Azad to continue to try the negotiations with the Taliban to get uh, a represent. The whole goal of this was a representative government where you had women, where you had the Taliban, where you had civil society, where you had the government of Afghanistan at the table to try and form a representative government. Now, that's really hard. And in most cases in, in world history, that exercise fails. 
But after 20 years and lives lost, we thought it was incumbent upon us to to try. And I'm sure the Biden administration felt the same way. So, Morgan, you know, I would wish you really would record these conversations that you have with Lindsey Graham or tell him to come on with us so we can hear you two argue about this. Um, you, you, please do. Please do. You know, you have an infant daughter. I have much older children. And one thing we always tell our children is if you, if you go in the store and you touch the object and you break it, you buy it. So is that the case yeah. when it comes to the United States in a place like Afghanistan? We are going, obviously, be leaving completely by 9-11 um, of this year. And is Joe Biden, Anthony Blinken, are they going to own what happens there after that, which many people who are familiar with the area, the, the predictions are pretty dire mm -hmm. in terms of women's rights and other critical issues. They are. They are. And, and I would say this is why, you know, I, I try to look at this analytically for your listeners. And, and I will tell you, I, I'm personally conflicted about it. You know, I, I definitely, rep, you know, represented and worked with Zell and, and Secretary Pompeo, you know, on the on the uh, on the peace deal. But I also for many years was on the board of, of the group that helped fund uh, the outside group that helped fund the American University in Afghanistan. I've been to Afghanistan as a civilian to speak to a women's entrepreneurship group because I'm a little, I've got a screw loose, I guess. So I personally have done a lot to help education of women in Afghanistan. So I don't, I, do, I don't, I don't think anybody who's making these foreign policy decisions looks at this lightly. lightly. Uh, I know that President Trump, just from my dealings in the administration, was, was fine uh, to take on the responsibility of leaving Afghanistan. And, but that's why we tried to work towards a, a peace deal and trying to get a representative government and Afghanistan. And listen, some things are just not fair in foreign policy. They will land on your lap. I will tell you what the Biden administration will have to do. There's a really interesting parallel, actually. If you look at the president, and, and Senator Graham has made this parallel, and I think I argued with him about it this morning, but, it, but he's right. So if you look at uh, Iraq after 2008 or 2009, so President Obama is inaugurated. Uh, he announces that we're leaving uh, Iraq. And what and we watched over several years, we watched um, ISIS grow uh, and, and fester. And, and, uh, and you know, it's, there was really no, I mean, it was former Al-Qaeda in Iraq to get really wonky. But there was essentially uh, no, the, the, uh, the entity of ISIS was new in Iraq after President Obama withdrew our troops. Now, the comparison to the Afghanistan, you could look at uh, what Biden, you know, has done, sort of accepting the Trump peace plan, accepting the Trump timeline, just extending it by a few months. And, and you can say now what happens if the same thing happens in Afghanistan that happened in Iraq in 2009 and 2010? I think that many people would argue, and, and you'd have to get some military scholars on to debate our ability to do this without, a, without any sort of forward presence, um, uh, you know, in Southeast Asia, um, not to the extent that we have an incident come for sure. So the argument would be, can you watch if Al-Qaeda and ISIS fester, and can you go in, and sorry to be blunt, but can you go in and whack them, right, and take care of them before they grow into the entity that they grew into in Iraq? So I do think, you know, that the Biden administration could look at that carefully. They should learn the lessons of the Obama withdrawal in Iraq um, and, and what happened in 2009 and 10 and so on whenever ISIS, you know, uh, uh, grew and festered and, and took over Iraq and Syria. Um, and they certainly should not let al-Qaeda and ISIS grow in Afghanistan the way, you know, the way it did in Iraq. If it does, they're going to have to own that. But it is, it is really, really, really tough. And it The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Such an important analogy you raise, historical analogy, I think we all need to think about tonight. And and Morgan Ortegas, it is such a delight to talk to you always. Um, please, please come back with Lindsey Graham and all your arguments. Would love to talk to you again. Um, so, yeah, th- thank you so much. Um, and, and that is um, former State Department spokesperson Morgan Ortegas, also an officer in the United States Navy Reserve. Um, and we should note that President Biden, after making his his remarks about our withdrawal from Afghanistan. He himself, the father of a soldier who fought in the war, made a visit to Section 60 in Arlington National Cemetery, where many of the dead from the Afghan war are buried. I'm Jeannie Zeno, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. My name is Jeannie Janzano. I'm a Bloomberg political contributor, and I am delighted to be accompanied today by Frank Misano, a partner at Bracewell's Policy Resolution Group. Uh, Frank, it is so good to talk to you. I hope you're enjoying the beautiful weather today. Ay, ay, ay. Hi, Jeannie. It's raining down here in uh, D.C. So oh, I, uh, come I, to I'm, New I'm York, excited. Frank. <laughs> I'm excited to see a little rain. I know that I just heard the weather. It's coming your way. So, um, But I just planted a bunch of stuff at the house, and uh, my wife has been all over me to do that. And it's a little bit of rain, so it's going in. It's perfect. So that's a good thing, right? A good thing. Yeah. Um, we also had some good news on a very, very bad transition here, Frank. I'm sorry to say, but... Um, I, some good news from Jerome Powell today talking about the economy. Um, Chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, said that the economy appears to be at an inflection point, poised for stronger growth and hiring from here on out as the country emerges from the pandemic. He said a further spread of COVID cases remains the big risk, which is something I want to ask Frank about in a moment. He spoke with David Rubenstein, Carlisle Group co-chairman and co-founder at a virtual event hosted by the Economic Club of Washington. And I believe we have sound on that. The economy at this point uh, does seem to be at a bit of an inflection point, and uh, that makes sense with ever more widespread vaccinations, with strong fiscal policy, with continued support for monetary policy. You see the economy opening. You can see ridership on airplanes going up and people going back to restaurants. I think the March jobs report that we recently got uh, shows what that can look like. So, Frank, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, Powell has been noting on 60 Minutes over the weekend and in his remarks today that the big risk is obviously further spread of COVID cases. He has said less about the possibility of inflation or overheating the economy. What's your view on this? Well, honestly, um, you can really feel that the momentum of the economy starting to come back. You know, I do a lot of work in the oil and gas industry. The oil and gas industry is seeing a strong, a stronger recovery now. That's expected to continue. Still not at maybe 2019 levels, but certainly well beyond 
anywhere where we were during the COVID downturn. So we're starting to see that strength there. I was just traveling last week. The airports were packed. Um, so I, I do, I do, uh, and then of course, you know, you can go out to any restaurant around here in, in the Maryland DC area and you start to see more and more people, more and more tables, uh, turning over. So I really do feel the momentum of the economy. Certainly there is that, um, there is that uncertainty, especially in a place like Michigan, where they're seeing a lot of extra cases, um, where maybe there's been some hesitance to, to get vaccines. But I really do feel like even with a slight blip up in some of the cases that we're seeing, you, people are really starting to feel the, the rebound uh, of the economy and, and taking and the vaccines kicking in for them to be able to kind of inch back towards um, towards towards a, a regular life or pre-COVID life. Now, what I would say about inflation is, it's a concern. It may not be on Powell's speaking points, but it's certainly on his mind. I think, and it's certainly on the mind, um, from what I'm reading from some of the administration. They're somewhat concerned that they're they're overheating, that they could overheat um, this. And you know, the fact that Larry Summers has been kind of poo-pooed by a lot of progressives, I really do think Biden is kind of keeping an ear to the ground with the Larry Summers approach, um, because they really don't want to uh, crank this up so that it can't be uh, be slowed down, right, uh, on an inflation side. So I do think that is a concern. I think that's something they're looking at. So that's exactly what I wanted to ask you. $2.2 trillion for this first jobs infrastructure package, too big, too much. Uh, what is your view on that? Well, I mean, it's a lot of money, right? We just, and, and, and you remember, that's on top of a big package that had lots of energy provisions, lots of uh, PPP loans and things that we passed in December, right? So, you know, I do think that Democrats, um, they wanted to score a political victory, right? Um, there's no doubt about that. It didn't need to be this big, and it didn't need to happen this quickly. But uh, it did need to happen that quickly for, from a political perspective for them. And the fact that they went ahead and did it alone just goes to show you that, that, that it was a political, uh, a, a political act. So um, I do think that there's some concern in the minds of, of folks that, that that was too much too fast. Um, now you're piling a debate about a massive infrastructure program on top, which, of course, we certainly do need to invest in infrastructure, right? And there's an opportunity for a bipartisan approach, just like there was in December on energy and other issues, to have a bipartisan approach to address that. But, you know, again, that's where we're going to see the rubber meet the road. That's where Democrats um, progress. I mean, uh, moderate Democrats are likely going to put their foot down, I think, because remember, there's only a three-vote margin in the House right now. Nancy Pelosi has a three-vote margin in the House, so she can't afford uh, – so we're a tied Senate and a three-vote margin in the House. And those are really tight margins, which makes people who want a pet project or, like, for instance, the guys up in the Northeast who are hankering for getting the salt tax uh, limit repealed – um, you know, it, it gives them a lot more power to be able to kind of uh, hold things up. And I think Joe Manchin has uh, expressed that. And I there's a swath of moderate uh, Democrats who are going to be in that spot, too. Well, great. Frank, we want to talk so much more about this and in particular your expertise in climate and energy. And as somebody living in New York, you mentioned salt. I know it well. So my name is Jeannie Shanzano. This is Bloomberg. 
I am Jeannie Shanzano, accompanied by Frank Maisano, partner at Bracewell's Policy Resolution Group. And Frank, I think you probably just heard Charlie mentioned the CDC panel, the panel wrapped up today and the CDC without a vote, which means the pause on the J&J vaccine is going to be extended. Um, so that that's some big news out of Washington today. Um, other big news, um, Frank, you're going to mark your calendar April 28th. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has invited the president to give his state of the state, not a state of the union, um, a little bit later than many of us thought uh, to a joint session of Congress. But of course, given the pandemic, we expect it to be smaller and more socially distant. So I wanted to ask you, in terms of your expertise on climate and energy, what do you want the president to say about where we are vis-a-vis -vis climate and energy in this country? The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. Well, the president's saying a lot uh, already, and the question is, uh, can we do all that he's saying? And that's interesting. So right now, um, next week, um, uh, on what would be Earth Day, which is the 22nd and the 23rd, which is Thursday and Friday of next week, he is going to have a big climate summit where they're going to bring international leaders from Canada and lots of places uh, here to have a discussion about climate. Now, domestically, they're already working hard, right? We know that they, uh, they're pushing aggressively. They're being pushed by uh, progressives to be aggressive. Uh, to reduce emissions, to find ways to reduce emissions, to advance the infrastructure for electric cars and things like that. Um, so we're going to continue to see those efforts. Um, right now, it's a lot of symbolic uh, moves that they're making to try and turn the ship around. Because remember, under Donald Trump, this ship was going in a completely opposite direction. It was going away from the Paris Agreement. It was going away from uh, advancing uh, some of the policies that the that the, that the, the Biden administration is going to take on, so related to the environment and climate change. So the first thing they really had to do was try to turn that ship in the direction they wanted to, um, and uh, you know that that means a lot of symbolic issues, a lot of uh, appointments that he's making, and a lot of push from from those appointments to to kind of change the direction of those agencies as they uh, enforce laws, as they regulate, and as they uh, look for ways to advance new technologies. So that's really where we are. We're going to get a taste of it um, next week on Thursday and Friday when he meets with all these international leaders. We may see some uh, new commitments from the U.S. as well as new commitments from Canada and South Korea and other nations. But the big question still remains, and, and, and I suspect he will get into this again uh, in, in, in his speech to Congress. But remember, this is, these issues always take a lower profile in those big speeches. And in, and in that speech in Congress, I expect him to talk more about uh, COVID and the recovery from COVID and advancing infrastructure and things that voters are really focused on versus climate. Now, I know everyone says, oh, we're focused on climate, but really voters are not that focused on climate change as much as they are on infrastructure and jobs and COVID and recovering from COVID and things like that. But, Jeannie, let me just tell you, the one big thing that's out there 
and it's bigger than just climate, but it's, it's an economic issue, it's a competitiveness issue, it's a global trade issue, it gets into the EV supply chain, is, it, is this fight we're going to have with China? And right now, uh, John Kerry is headed over to China. He's going to try and go there and do some more discussions. They had discussions earlier in, in Alaska earlier this year. That didn't go well. But really the big guns like China and India and, and those countries are going to be the ones that are, are going to have to make some movement for Biden to be really successful in pushing on this climate issue. And I'm so glad you you mentioned uh, John Kerry's visit. Um, what, you, what was your assessment of the earlier meeting in Alaska that you mentioned? And also, what do you expect out of this meeting that going on in, in China? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I, they didn't have much success in Alaska. It was very symbolic. There was a lot of uh, hand wringing and and uh, and and, and um, you know standing and firm and where people are. I suspect that Kerry wouldn't be headed to China unless he was going to try and you know pull them in a direction where he could show positive uh, progress. Um, so I, I think that he he's looking for ways to show that they're making progress in light of the meeting coming up next week in light of some of the other big events that they have. But China is a big, a big worry. You know, they say a lot of things and they do a lot of things differently. And on the environment, that's always been where they are. Last year alone, they expanded coal production larger than anyone else and will continue to do that over years. And, and of course, that's one of the, the big challenges uh, with reducing emissions in the U.S., We've gone in the opposite direction, converting a lot of our coal to natural gas and to renewables, and we've successfully reduced our emissions dramatically since 2005 because utilities have done it with market mechanisms. So, um, so I do think that uh, China is a big question mark, and not just on the environment, but certainly on global trade and lots of things. If we want to be successful on, in, uh, on, in, on advancing electric vehicles and that infrastructure, we have to have the supply chain. And right now, the supply chain is owned by China. Uh, one of the things that we saw recently was uh, a move by a company called Deep Green, which is in the middle, which is trying to go into uh, deep, air, deep sea uh, collection of minerals that have all these uh, critical minerals. So we don't have to dig in to uh, Indonesia or into the Congo to try and get some of these critical minerals for that EV supply chain. That's a positive development. That's going to re- lessen our reliance on China. Um, but that's the big, uh, the big elephant in the room trying to get uh, and trying to get in, in, in ahead of China and, and, and battle them on a global trade perspective. And Frank, you mentioned so many things there. Um, you know, I, I wish we had more time to, to go through all of them. One thing I want to underscore is not just Earth Day, but the climate summit, summit coming up that I know you're going to be uh, watching very, very carefully on the 22nd and 23rd. And love to talk to you again about what you see comes out of that. And at some point, love to get a little bit more of your insight in terms of what you hope the administration will do beyond sort of this um, symbolic representation. So thank you so much, Frank. It has been great to talk to you. That's Frank Misano, a partner at Bracewell's Policy Resolution Group. I am Jeannie Shanzano, and this is Bloomberg.
This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I am Jeannie Shanzano. Um, I am really honored to speak today with Representative Carlos Jimenez, a Republican representing Florida's 26th congressional district. And Representative Jimenez, it is so good to talk to you today. It's my pleasure. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And I wanted to ask you, um, you sit on transportation and infrastructure, homeland security, so you are right in the heart of everything going on in Washington these days. I know you took a visit recently to the border. I wanted to see if you could just talk a little bit about what you saw there. Uh, I saw something that was a little bit, it was uh, out of control. Um, We have a huge spike in people coming across the border, especially a huge spike in unaccompanied children and also a huge spike in uh, family units that have children that are less than seven years old because the Biden administration has said that they will not uh, turn back any unaccompanied minor, so it means anybody 18 years or younger, and they will not uh, turn back any any uh, family units that have children that are, are less are seven years or less. And so um, that's what's uh, what's happening. Um, and so you see a, a stream of migrants. Uh, and unfortunately, it looks like we're in the in the family separation business because a lot of these kids that are coming over on our side actually got to to the border with their with their parents or with family members, and um, and then their parents let them go. Um, because they know they can stay here in the United States. And so it was, um, saw hundreds of kids uh, in a facility that was uh, not rated for it. They're probably a thousand percent overrated capacity, even though they had already shipped about a thousand kids uh, two days before we got there. And so it's really a crisis at the border, and it's really of our own making. Um, and it will not uh, subside. It's going to just get worse. And, and Representative, today the vice president uh, was participating in a roundtable um, with some national security experts on this issue. Of course, as you know, she's been tasked by the president with getting the situation under control. And when reporters were in the room, uh, Vice President Harris said it was important to deal with the root causes of the migration. And she hinted at an upcoming trip to the region. I believe we have sound on that. Let me be clear, and everyone who's been working on this you know, for decades will tell you it will not be obvious overnight. I'm looking forward to traveling. Um, hopefully it's my first trip to the Northern Triangle, um, stopping in Mexico and then going to Guatemala sometime soon. Yeah. So, Representative, uh, given what the vice president had to say today, I wanted to ask you, number one, how do you assess her role so far in terms of addressing this issue? And what would you like the administration to do vis-a-vis this immigration crisis, as you called it at this point? Well, I think they need to, A, go, into, go to the border and stuff. They wanna, if she wants to talk to Nicaraguans and, uh, and Mexicans and folks from the Northern Triangle, all she needs to do is get to the border. There's plenty of them. She can talk to a whole bunch of them uh, to find out what the root causes are. The root causes, everybody knows what the root causes are, but when you incentivize uh, people that are economically depressed um, and that look to America as a beacon of hope, when you incentivize that trip, you're going to get more, and you're going to get more, and you're going to get more. And so, yeah, it's, uh, this, the, the root causes are going to take investment by the United States, it's going to take uh, incentivizing businesses to relocate from maybe China and other places, you know, that are far off and uh, and have us uh, start to look at our region a little bit, uh, you know, more in depth and uh, t- pay more attention to our backyard, which is Central and South America. 
um, because, you know, the living conditions and the economic conditions, you know, are right for people to try to, you know, better their lives. I don't blame the migrants for, for coming here. I do blame the administration for incentivizing it and putting those migrants at risk because there, it is a risky proposition. Look, we, every single one of those migrants crossing over, they have to pay the multinational cartels that are controlling the border. So they have to pay between four and $6,000 per head to cross over. Young girls are at risk because, again, those multinational cartels may be abusing them and probably are abusing them. We have reports that girls are being abused, et cetera, by these multinational cartel members. And so we are um, actually, uh, we are making them richer. Uh, we, we think that, uh, and we estimate that those multinational cartels are making anywhere from $500 million to a billion dollars a month on human trafficking. And that has all to do with the, uh, the incentives that the Biden administration has now given to migrants to come on over and try to make it into the United States. Uh, Representative, in addition to sitting on Homeland Security, you also sit on transportation and infrastructure. So given uh, this infrastructure bill that the Biden administration has put forward and your work on that committee, what would you like to see the the bill look like? It, what could get your support? You know, I'm assuming the 2.2 is a bit high for you. What would you like oh, to yeah. see stripped out of that? <laughs> anything, anything that really is not has, does have anything to do with what we call infrastructure. Infrastructure to me, roads, bridges. Also, uh, infrastructure means investing. Um, let's say in 5G investing in future technologies, uh, transportation technologies, make those things that are going to make America more competitive in the world uh, marketplace. That's what I call infrastructure. And so if, it, if uh, the Biden administration would focus on that, then I think they could, you could garner a lot of support from Republicans. We all, we all believe that we do need to invest in our infrastructure, and we do have aging infrastructure that we need invest in, in investments in. But, you know, when you talk about $2.3 trillion dollars, that's $2,300 billion, all right? And we just, on, on the heels of a $2 trillion COVID relief package, we are, you know, putting our children and our grandchildren in debt, which, which then diminishes their ability in the future to invest in infrastructure and the things that they need in order to make up, to, you know, to have progress in America and, and assure that America, you know, is leading the world. And so that, those are the problems that I have. And then also, how do you pay for it? Well, you're going to pay for it by increasing the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28 percent, which is higher than communist China. And by the way, the communist Chinese understand incentives and disincentives. Those companies in China that are involved in international commerce, their corporate tax rate is only 15 percent. So we're going to put our American companies at a disadvantage. You know, the Manufacturing uh, you know, Association here in the United States believes that, you know, this, this package will cost, you know, uh, 1 million American jobs. And I think it's going to cost more than that. And so we're going to lose jobs. We're going to lose competitiveness. Um, we're also taking away some of the incentives for, for energy production in the United States. At the time, we just became the leader in energy production. We're going to, we're going to lose that, that lead now, all wrapped up into this package. And uh, we just can't do it. I mean, you know, look, focus on infrastructure. And I think you'll have a lot of Republicans, you know, backing you on that. Yeah. And, and what we're hearing is that Republicans may be willing to do about a one trillion dollar bill, um, you know, and as you mentioned, addressing things like roads, bridges, those kinds of things. Even so, how would you 
how would you pay for that? Are you willing to raise the corporate tax rate at all from the twenty one percent? I don't think I don't think that raising you know taxes right now is is the way to go. And so, so you know, then how, how would you for pay it? for yeah. it? Yeah, I we've got to we've got to look at different ways to pay for that. All right. Obviously, you know, there's a trust fund, there's a gas tax, those things that are already in place. Uh, although the gas tax is, is coming down, we do need to make these investments. Uh, we have to find a way to pay for it. But uh, the $2.3 trillion is way too much. And, I, and maybe some Republicans want to go to a trillion. I'm not sure we need to get all the way up to a trillion. You know, we're throwing trillion around like we used to throw billions around. And, uh, and that's being dangerous. A trillion, again, is $1,000 billion. That's a lot of money, all right? A trillion dollars, if you put it end-to-end, goes 92 million miles. It's the distance from here to the sun, all right? And so it's three times the distance from here to Mars. And it takes a spacecraft something like 10 months to get to Mars. So imagine what a trillion dollars really is. That's, that's what a trillion dollars is, and, and uh, you know, it's far too much money. And we've, we've been spending way, way too much money on things that really – um, you know, are not what they, they are labeled as. The COVID relief bill was not really a COVID relief bill. Um, and this infrastructure bill is not really an infrastructure bill. You know, there's got a whole bunch of other things tied to it that's got nothing to do with infrastructure. Let's focus in on the things we really need to do and then find a way to pay for it so we don't put our children in debt. In the minute and a half I have left, I just really wanted to ask you quickly, news out of Cuba this week, Raul Castro stepping down from power. Um, Do you think the Biden administration should reopen dialogue with Cuba that was closed by the previous president? Actually, no, because uh, first of all, uh, if he's stepping down from power, don't don't really believe all much much about that. He'll step down from power only when he's unable to exercise power. Um, you know, the Castro brothers, you know, are here for, for, for some time. Although, you know, Raul is already in his 90s. And so I expect that he's trying to wind it down. But he, believe me, when the final decisions are going to be done by Raul Castro, even though he says he's stepping down from power. And no, I don't believe the Biden administration should open up these negotiations. Things are getting worse in, in Cuba. They're losing access to credit uh, and markets around the world because the, the failure to pay anybody. Um, you know, they borrow money and they never pay it back. And now they basically, I guess, run out of countries to uh, to do that to even China and Russia are telling them, hey, we got to pay. But no, I don't think that uh, now is not the time to use those bad questions. Representative Jimenez, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And thank you to all of my guests, including uh, Frank Maisano and Representative Jimenez and Morgan Ortegas. I am Jeannie Shan Bloomberg, and this is uh, Jeannie Shan Zeno, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry, and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.